0: An absolutely crucial pod today where we're going to go through some uh, fascinating new data on coronavirus and it's going to answer pretty much all your questions you need answered. So it's going to focus on the UK generally, uh, but it will it will tell the story for many, many regions. So just to let you know, here in Ireland, we have a group of 40 doctors now and surgeons and some big names and our group is publishing white papers and summary documents and we're gonna be in the media. I'm actually in one of Ireland's premier newspapers this Sunday and a half or three quarter page spread. So things are moving and scientific truth is getting out there. And I'm gonna be talking to Nick now in South Africa and he's gonna have a great story of also adding international experts and worldwide experts bringing them all together. That's right, Nick.
1: 100%. Things are going very fast. We're, uh, we've been expanding since I was last on your show, Ivor. I think that was in May. Um, Panda is now a truly international organization. We have set up our scientific advisory board, which includes uh, um, Professor Kuldorf from Harvard, Professor Gupta from Oxford, Professor Bhattacharya from Stanford, Professor Bhakti from the University of Mainz, and, of course, our very own Nobel laureate, um, Michael Levitt sorry, sorry, Michael. Um, and then the the, the the workhorse part of the organization now has expanded to include scientists from all over the planet. And in every kind of field, we've got modelers, we've got virologists, we've got uh, geneticists, we've got data scientists, it's, we've got a proper force to be reckoned with now. And we can uh, develop and generate our own perspectives on all the masses of data that come out of the World's governments. So we're Ec- going, we're growing.
0: Excellent, Nick. And the only way is up now because the world is truly waking up. And we know the Great Barrington Declaration, gbdeclaration.org, has, I think, 650,000 laypeople signatures and it's got over 45,000 now scientists and doctors signed. So anyone who thinks that this is a fringe view that coronavirus is not quite what but is being sold uh, is is incorrect. It is no longer fringe and it's growing fast. 100%. So you have, I previewed briefly your stunning data from the UK, which answers so many questions. So I guess if you share your slides now and uh, we'll just run through it and I'll throw in some of my thoughts, hopefully without interrupting too much.
1: <laughs> yeah, sure, Ivor, uh, let's get cracking. Um, we, have a few slides mostly from the UK, as you say, uh, which cause into question the whole basis for this recent lockdown. But I want to start with these US ones. I mean, you and I love these slides, right? Uh, for me, this is the slide of COVID, um, just showing how, how much the narrative differs from um, reality. You know, we've heard time and time again there's this second wave in the United States, right? But ethical skeptic, looked at the data carefully and separated out your northern latitude states from the border country states and you can see that you've got first waves in two different regions being superimposed, no second wave in America, right? And that's not where the story ends because you can add in the 2003 SARS-CoV epidemic and guess what, exactly the same pattern.
0: Yeah, and we see this all over the world with Brazil and, and the, the tropical regions. And you know what? As this seasonality was becoming blindingly obvious and being shared on Twitter and all over the place, interestingly, on July 28th, the WHO came out with an announcement that this virus is not seasonal and will continue to be uh, f- felt in one huge wave. They actually denied seasonality in late July, just when it was coming out that it was obvious that it was. Well, we've we've got the
1: same problem as late as October. We've got our um, Ministerial Advisory Committee denying seasonality and predicting that we're going to have a second wave in the middle of our summer. Okay, then. It's ridiculous. But you can take the horse to water. Can't make a drink. Um, Next interesting thing to show you, This is Sweden. We do these analyses. Anybody can go onto our website and look at this for their own country or for regions of the world at a time. Um, This was inspired by, I think, your um, double pane slides. Um, But this is fully automated, up-to-date web scrape data. Um, And this shows in the top half of the chart, the cases for Sweden, in the bottom half on a different scale, a magnified scale, otherwise you wouldn't be able to see them at all, the deaths for Sweden. And the line that's going across there is the fatality ratio. And you can see there that the case fatality ratio has declined to almost nothing in the face of, even in Sweden, a wave of enormous testing. And that wave of testing has not been accompanied by deaths except to a negligible, what we might call endemic um, level. So quite extreme in the case of Sweden.
0: Yeah, and I think just one quick comment You know coming into the winter and i've been saying this for months there will be a resurgence uh, coming into the winter with endemic viruses that have always caused excess mortality since time immemorial and sweden i'm sure in the coming weeks will see increased uh, deaths in the red there but the question will be over the course of the winter will the excess death be remarkable compared to prior seasons and that's the only question that matters because SARS-CoV-2 now has become the dominant endemic virus. The influenza strains seem to have been kicked out of the virome. And uh, the, any deaths excess in the winter will be badged SARS-CoV-2. But, but that doesn't mean anything untoward is really happening. So that's what we need to watch. 100%. Um,
1: what were you telling me earlier about the, the rhinovirus as well? I found that very interesting.
0: Yeah, that was from Professor Stefan Homburg months ago at this stage. And he was making the point that people are trying to credit lockdowns and, and mask wearing in the summer uh, to lower uh, issues. So, one thing was no, it was seasonality that kept it low, right? That's a no brainer. And the other thing was that as we came towards the winter, rhinoviruses kept rising as much as and actually more than prior years. So they also were subject to the masks and lockdown, but they ignored it. So the reality is, rhinovirus rising right up even more than prior years in Germany shows demonstrates empirically that the masks and all that stuff doesn't impact viruses.
1: Very interesting, isn't it? Okay, let's get let's get on to the the UK. Same slide, okay. And there you've got a slightly bigger resurgence or or endemic seasonal um, increase in the deaths. Um, But we need to get into this and try and understand what garbage you're being fed at the moment either. And this is where it starts. And this is what Michael Eden has been banging on about to such good effect in recent weeks. This is your total monthly respiratory deaths over the last five years. So that includes COVID, includes all other respiratory viruses. And that green dashed line and that black dashed line are your lower confidence limits and upper confidence limits. So you can see what's actually happening there in the last month of this chart, the last complete month, which is obviously October, is that you aren't even in the range of the limits. You're below the lower confidence limit for respiratory viruses. Hardly the conditions in which a country should be considering locking down, even if lockdowns worked, which they don't. Absolutely. It's a stunner. It's a stunner. But it gets even more interesting either. You cannot believe this stuff. This is all cause excess deaths for England, okay? And you see there the big surge during the first wave, and here we come to the so-called deadly second wave. And what have we got? In October, the last week, sorry, the week ending October 16, the last date for which the report is available, 674 excess deaths compared to the excess deaths at peak, which were above 11,000. So, Somebody might say, well, there you go, 674 excess deaths from COVID. We've got to protect the NHS. We've got to protect the hospitals. But place of death hospital, instead of looking at all places of death, shows that we're having deaths below the normal rate of hospital deaths. So then you have to say, well, where are those 674 Deaths happening. Place of death, own home. 638 of those deaths are occurring at home. And one thing, I mean, I'd be interested in your opinion here, but I find it completely implausible that those deaths are coronavirus deaths and nobody's going to hospital. I mean, clearly, people with other conditions are being prevented from going to hospital, whether by fear or by just simply refusal to treat them in order to keep the hospitals clear for coronavirus, but they're not coronavirus deaths.
0: Yep. I would say all of the logic and evidence would suggest their lockdown induced deaths excess over prior years, because the people who didn't go in with chest pains and during the escalation or the actual real epidemic, there were lots of these home deaths because the hospitals were closed for business mostly. So all those chest pains, cardiac disease is the biggest killer in the world. It kills more people than anything else. So anything that stops people going into hospital with chest pain is going to cause a big bump in death. So I'd say during the epidemic that applies, there are lockdown deaths and also maybe cancers not getting seen and then all those other things and suicides, depression and all that, a whole load of things. And then on the right hand side, as you've just said, yeah, we're seeing this tale of these home deaths, non-COVID, because anyone who dies of COVID are absolutely going to end up in hospital. They're going to be wheezing for breath. They're going to be trying to breathe. They're going to be brought into hospital. And if they pass, that's where they'll pass. So it's almost certain these are lockdown induced excess deaths. 100%.
1: Another way of um, looking at it just just to get it all on one page is just to compare the five-year, sorry, yeah, the five-year averages for place of death. And as you can see, for care homes and for hospitals and for this category, other, which would be your accidents and so on, they're all below their five-year averages. It's only deaths at home that are above the five-year average. That's where the excess deaths are sitting. Same point, just made
0: with more emphasis and just one quick observation there if you integrate or add up the area under the curve the excess deaths due to lockdown are not a mile off the genuine covid deaths even now so that makes the lockdown net net kind of worthless but over time we're going to get a ton more lockdown induced deaths especially when the uk yesterday september 4th voted to lock the whole country down in the most incredible act of acti- anti-science I've seen since this began. It's lunacy.
1: It's absolute lunacy. There's no basis in science for what they're doing. Um, yeah, I, I actually think over time, either these, these lockdown deaths will way exceed the coronavirus deaths, because what this is not picking up is the people who missed their cancer screenings and this kind of thing where there's very long-term deaths. And I mean, you guys are fortunate in the developed world that, uh, you know, lockdown doesn't necessarily present as a starvation problem. But um, in countries like South Africa and Brazil and India, when you lock down, you kill people in a few years time from starvation because the economies take such a hard smack. And that's the real tragic one. That's the one that's going to be the real killer. Um, The UNICEF UNICEF, uh, report predicting that there would be more than a million uh, childhood deaths. As a result of the economic impact of lockdown you know that's more than
0: coronavirus is is said to have killed worldwide And, and coronavirus generally takes the aged in most countries the death age is ahead of the life expectancy so the quality adjusted life years lost will be maybe 50 times lower or 60 times lower than you know those million childhood deaths so it's insane. And, you know, I think it was published in the Lancet there. They published a paper looking at the long term deaths. And again, a lot of quality adjusted life years more than Corona. But they had around 200,000 deaths for the UK, possibly long term, due to the lockdown. But then they said it's probably OK because we saved 350,000 deaths. But that was based on Ferguson's debunked model. So we know now that lockdown saves next to no debt, if any. So the 200K is blood on lockdown hands.
1: No, I, I totally agree with you. I, couldn't, I could not believe that Flaxman paper, you know, Flaxman and, and a list of 40 authors, including Ferguson. I, I just couldn't believe it. I mean, it, how that went, went past peer review, it, it, the mind boggles. Um, Incredible. You know, they, 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 and they cheated. I mean, they took the, the, the pre lockdown um, deaths averaged them and then the, the sorry, the pre-lockdown and reproduction rate and averaged that and then took the post-lockdown reproduction rate and averaged that and said, oh, look, it dropped. But what they were doing by averaging it was obscuring the fact that the, um, the reproduction rate had already started declining prior to the lockdown and that it carried on declining in a smooth straight line. So they were, they were trying to persuade us that there was a regime change, a break, a statistical break in the curve and um it was completely dishonest and i mean you, you can try it if you if you give the curves to a, a good rock star statistician and say tell us where the lockdown occurred they can't do it
0: there's no way they could tell that and just to re-emphasize for for the viewer so exactly that they assumed the lockdown made a massive difference by averaging and separating out the two time regions which was which was fraudulent and not only did the lockdown come after the curve had turned as you said but the lockdown when it came in the curve never shimmied or changed shape whatsoever so lockdown added nothing to voluntary measures that people took anyway that were traditional epidemic guideline ones so that paper professor stefan Homburg from i think hamburg university or a university in germany within a week or two He issued a devastating reply with a basic analysis describing the fraud and how it was perpetrated, just as you said. And of course no one's taking notice of that, even though no one can counter it.
1: Yeah. I mean the only alternative to fraud is a level of incompetence that, you know, is just hard to hard to agree with.
0: When the guys who drove the lockdowns and were out by a factor of 10 to 12 in their models, when the same guys get together and say lockdowns work using fraudulent methods, it doesn't take an Einstein to work out what's going on. And it's not just stupidity. You got to
1: smell the rat, eh? You got to smell the rat. So this is for another type of rat because I keep on getting told... um, you know, oh, but we've become better at treating it. And maybe, maybe, you, you know, what you've been showing us about the deaths occurring at home and there being no excess deaths, there's still lots of cases or people getting sick. Um, and so here we have not deaths, but hospital uh, by clinical attendances uh, recorded for respiratory only, again, for the UK. Um, and what we show there is that relative to the dotted line, which is your baseline, um, you're actually sitting quite handsomely below the baseline for respiratory attendances in the UK. So this is now not deaths; it's clinical attendances. Yeah. And the other told- thing you get told is that, and this one I particularly hate, I can't stand it when people get onto this story about it's the children's fault, you know, they're, they're socializing, We had a horrible case of that recently where a bunch of kids were tested after going to a party. Of course, all of them asymptomatic, you know, and they come up with a bunch of uh, positives and they blame it on the party and blame the children on killing granny and all that kind of stuff. It's horrible psychology and it's really just, you cannot believe that people will be like this. But this is showing that those attendances are increasing in the old group where the respiratory diseases tend to happen. and if you look at the children there, that's the little uh, light blue and uh, dotted yellow and orange line. There's nothing going on. There's just nothing happening there. So it couldn't be more of a falsehood.
0: So we basically have the hump there of the normal return to school. Yeah. And it basically doesn't really affect the, the respiratory of the elderly, which is rising normally heading into the winter months. And again, use the word normal heading up normally going into the winter months this is like any other season now we had a tough epidemic with a new ish virus but it shared a lot of its protein with prior ones hence very few people got hit uh, relatively yeah but we had a big hump now that it's gone it's endemic and we go back to normal-ish winter behavior
1: that's right there's the last winter right there And so you're seeing this part of the curve here at the end, this little uptick over here in October. Well, there it is in uh, the previous winter. And, you know, this, if you look at the reaction to this thing now,
0: where was the reaction there? Exactly. And I show my version. I have 2018 version of these graphs and it's the exact same point in Ireland in 2018 from September 8th, you got the rise By October 8th, you are well up in respiratory driven by influenzas and other viruses. And the curve goes right up like you see there to the end of December. And our situation in Ireland now, even though we have coronavirus, it's following the exact same curve as 18. There is no difference. Right.
1: This is just a list of causes of. In, I think, sorry, I need to just check this. Is this the infections? Is this the attendances? Are they above baseline? Are they below baseline? Are they increasing or are they decreasing? And you can see here, I mean, the one that I would just like to point out, I think is particularly important is cardiac. Okay, above baseline. Those deaths at home that we were talking about. That's the kind of problem you're worried about. If you don't get quick treatment
0: for a heart attack, that's when it causes death. My work for many years on prevention of cardiac disease and death. I'm very familiar with this and there's no question and everyone should know this. You need prompt attention. When you get a chest pain, there's enormous amounts of deaths because people don't follow up and they could easily be saved. So here's blood on hands, big time from the biggest killer in the world. If you take the biggest killer in the world, cardiac arrests and heart disease, and you just make that a little worse, you blow away viruses, no time. So this is the tragedy. The second biggest yeah. killer, cancers. Cancers, we're going to see a long, slow, hump in cancer death now going into the future, more blood on their hands. And, you know, suicides, we don't have to figure. Someone in, on the inside told me the suicide deaths don't get reported for a long, long time. And especially now, you're not going to see the suicide deaths for a year or two. But way out, we're going to look back and say, wow. And they're the most tragic with the most quality adjusted life years lost. You add up cancer, heart disease and suicides and the rest and multiply by the quality adjusted life years lost, I'd say Corona, even including the epidemic, will be vanishingly small compared to what's coming.
1: I just don't know how these lockdown promoters sleep at night either. It's just the stuff has been known. It is predictable. I, I just don't understand it i mean as you said it's, there's blood on their hands and it I, I just do not know what you do to a human being to make it possible for them to sleep at night once they've understood this
0: yet the cognitive dissonance is profound and they are entrenched and painted into a corner now and worse and the WHO guidelines to the end of 19 time honored the irish pandemic guidelines are the same they all say no isolation no quarantines. Once a virus has entered a country, it's not productive. Don't do it. Oh, guidelines says that. Everybody's well, yeah.
1: guidelines. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And early 2020, there's one simple phrase. We copied China. That's a reality. For some bizarre reason, we copied China and then fell in love with lockdowns. Even though all of the science says they don't help worth a toss and they'll increase covid deaths over time including next season and they'll create an enormous amount of collateral death
1: i mean we'll get to it just now but the 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 evidence against lockdowns working even uh has now gone past just an observation in the data but we'll get to that i I mean just cover that for a few minutes i think because that that's really interesting as we now know why you know um but anyway let's hold that off uh just looking here um this is comparing the first wave with the so-called second wave. Um, and you can see very clearly this, whatever this is, um, or whatever you're going to attribute it to, it doesn't look at all like an epidemic curve. That gray line is the, the second wave. The blue line is the first wave. That's the seven-day moving average of, of deaths in the two waves. And on the right, again, with the yellow and blue line, you have this change in the reproduction rate, the classic... Gomperts, straight line um, in the yellow and blue these other three lines which represent deaths cases and icu admissions nothing like it at all it's no epidemic no epidemic
0: there at all yeah so just to clarify there yeah just to be sure the red and blue are the classic gomperts of a true epidemic which only happens once with a new virus and the other lines are showing the flat non-epidemic trajectory of what they call a second wave but is not
1: yeah the yellow and blue they're classic yeah
0: now one quick question on that in some of the more second wavy countries uh, in Europe, especially ones that missed the first wave seasonally they just didn't quite get it maybe Czech Republic they may see a, something that a little more looks like you know a classic epidemic curve maybe.
1: Yes, absolutely. They, they didn't have a first wave. They caught a few t- returning travellers out of their normal season. And now they come into the, what is their essentially their first wave epidemic curve. Um, yeah. And, and it's coming I- through very strongly. I hope they come out of it lighter than Western Europe. I really do. Um, but they're going through it right now. We've got members of Panda who are being affected by this right now.
0: Right, and uh, in a couple of months, though they'll they'll essentially pass through through it like time immemorial. In any case, so in a few months' time, they'll be through it anyway. Yeah, and that's it for them. Yeah. I I hope so, and I believe so. Yeah. Um,
1: <clears throat> this one's interesting. Sorry, I've got your picture in the way of the text. Yes, so I'm just gonna have to move it. Um, you can drag it. Yeah. The. Positivity data up until week 40 in the UK was being deduplicated. What that means is if the same person tested positive twice because they're in hospital and they're trying to test whether they're recovered or not or something of that nature, then you wouldn't count it twice. You wouldn't count that second test as a new case. But according to the surveillance report, there's this strange note saying that since week 40, positivity is calculated as the number of individuals testing positive during the week divided by the number of individuals tested. You know, so this positivity is fine. That's, that's all good. But the problem is those guys are being counted as cases.
0: Okay. So. I had heard this, Nick, and seen it, but this is official documents that if a guy tested three times with three positives in a week, three cases will go into the case's data? That's what this suggests.
1: I mean, this, the first part of that, which is that you know we, can, we, we, attest, we test the positivity rate that way. Fine. Okay. Got you. Reasonable. But the second sentence is a bit of a it's a bit breathtaking.
0: You kind of hope they made a mistake because that's out of the report. <laughs> oh. Okay, so there's, there's a case damage problem all into itself. Yeah, that's a new one, yeah. Um, um,
1: sorry, here we go. Um, the other thing which a colleague of ours brought to our attention um, just last night, is the first time I've seen this was, and I just thought I'd throw this in here, um, We need to, it's very hard to process quite how ubiquitous and abundant these little viruses are. I mean, these numbers are staggering here. You have, for example, in the soil and on terrestrial subsurfaces, 10 to the 30 or 10 to the 31. I mean, forget it. I can't imagine a number that big. That's starting to get into the domain of numbers of stars in the universe kind of thing. Um, you know, you're, you're you're in a really, truly huge number there, and this very interesting story that although human babies are born without viruses in their guts, by the end of their first week of life, you can isolate 100 million virus particles per gram of feces. You know how quickly the human body becomes basically colonized by viruses. I mean, 100 million is an awful lot for a gram of shit.
0: It is, yeah. And some babies, I mean, I have five of them, you know, they produce a lot of grams of shit. So <laughs> yeah, you're, talking, <laughs> you're talking just numbers beyond belief of viruses. And in fairness, uh, I think it was Dr. Zach Bush has gone through this since back in April. We sprang from the RNA. I mean, first in the primordial soup, there were you know, amino acids formed, proteins formed, and then came together. And it was the start of life. And the viruses precede us by forever. We came from them essentially. And I was also told from an expert in this that every species on earth, including all bacteria, each have a hundred of their own viruses associated with them as hosts. And the vir- viruses are everywhere in the atmosphere. There's even papers published in May showing how bacteria and viruses have been shown to travel on the trade winds, and that's one way they can spread around countries. And it's a SARS-CoV-2 paper showing all the patterns and how much of the spread would have been through the, I think the troposphere or something, in particles where... Hmm? Yeah, I'm amazed to hear that because I, I, I speculated, I said it, it's almost as if it comes in on the wind,
1: um, because if you look at the, the, the way it, it, in the Northern Hemisphere, it goes sort of from east to west, and in the southern hemisphere from west to east, you know, you in, 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 the, in the more extreme latitudes, you know, I noted it, it goes Chile, mm. and then the Western Cape in southern Africa and Cape Town, you know. And at the time, I, when that happened, I said, oh, uh, you know, it's, it's like, first of all, that's just like the flu. And then secondly, I wonder if Victoria in Australia is going to come next, because that's the Mediterranean climate there. And I actually, I think I tweeted about it even. And sure enough, like five days later, boom. Victoria, you know, yeah. so there is something well, spooky about that. I, I, it's it's it, it's kind of you have to think about these things, and when you're dealing with numbers this large, you, you know, you can sort of begin to understand how that might be the case.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And the paper had proof points demonstrating it can happen. It wasn't purely hypothetical, but they were hypothesizing the spread of SARS-CoV two being connected to this. But we also know that in Spanish flu and in many epidemics, within days of each other on opposite sides of the world, they sprang up. So that speaks to the spread going everywhere. And it also speaks to dormancy and seasonal triggering and triggering of the virome. But none of this is discussed. It's all just about, you know, your kid goes to school and then gives it to granny. So that's all part of the. That's all part of the fraudulent narrative, which I think at the end, we're going to check in and look at the reality of coronavirus, right?
1: I, I, I think so. And I mean, the one thing I would say is I don't jump onto any of these theories and say, well, that's it. That's the truth. I, I acknowledge that there's a lot of stuff we don't know. Okay. So I'm interested to hear people's theories about trade winds as I'm interested to hear people's theories about viral dormancy and change in temperature and things like that triggering epidemics. Those are all things which we need. They're all ideas that you must entertain as a scientist or a person who admires science at the very least. Um, it, you know, it's just, that's how you learn new things is by thinking about the novel or the, the creative idea. And we are simply not doing this. We, we have one cause, which is kids give it to granny. And we have one cure, which is lockdown. And it's the most stultifying approach I, you can possibly take to a complex system like an epidemic.
0: I have said for many, many months now, profoundly unscientific, anti-scientific, because debate and openness in science is the only way we ever get to good truth and maximize population health from any issue. But we have seen censorship since the very start of any other scientific opinion. So it's anti-scientific. There's no question about that. And I'll just mention one thing not to be anti-mask. But in the middle of the summer in Europe with the epidemic clearly gone until next winter resurgence, clearly gone, mandatory masks were brought in and even for children. And that was the darkest day for science in a century or more. I mean, that's literally the level of science of the, um, about the Salem, witch trials I am I'm, I'm finding it difficult to, to think of analogies. It's that bad. It's medieval. So you'd wonder how much stupidity and how much politics and evil, you know, but we won't get into that.
1: If you want to hear about, if you want to hear, uh, get a little glimpse of the real spirit of science, you got to listen to the, the conversation I had the other day with uh, our advisory board member, uh, Dr. Uh, Professor Suneta Gupta. I mean, there it is. That's how scientists need to be the heart, the spirit of science, that curious mind, you know, and exactly the opposite of this kind of, authoritarian let's put masks on all the kids kind of approach I, I recommend to all your viewers to listen to that interview just to see what a wonderful person she is and how how science should be approached we need that kind of uplifting thing in these times
0: yeah she's a, a, such an intelligent incredibly experienced uh, um brilliant woman um and what a shame she was attacked for actually raising good science against bad and to be attacked and excoriated by the media it's disgusting so you know the shame will eternally be on those people you know with time the truth comes out and eternal shame i would say
1: and she will be she will stay the course she's not going anywhere as uh, a wonderful woman yeah. I, I was Principal. like a teenager on a first date i tell you i was so excited to speak to her <laughs> um beautiful woman yeah, uh, but anyway, the, the point of this thing here, the the asymptomatic uh, positives heading at the top there. You know, why does this all uh, make you worried about testing, testing, testing? Well, when your prevalence is low, you run into this problem that, you know, when you sequence viruses from samples like the the baby's feces and that kind of thing, they come up with quite a large portion. You know, almost half being uh, dissimilar from anything previously known, and That means that if you've got that many unknown viruses floating around, you've got to worry about whether they share sequences with viruses like coronavirus, COVID. And the shorter the sequence, the more likely that there will be an overlap with other viruses. And so you've got to worry when testing prevalence, when testing goes up in a population where the prevalence is quite low, how often are you detecting something else? Absolutely. Mm. And having, having said all of that, this is the headline you guys are living with. Liverpool wanting to test half a million people in the city, screening, to try and establish the feasibility of mass population screening by means of PCR test. I mean, this is pseudoscience. It's just making money for
0: the, the, the test producers. It's, it's medieval level. Uh, we've regressed now. Uh, it's atavistic, it, it's insane it's anti-science yet again and you know what in the WHO guidelines and the other pandemic guidelines developed over decades up to the end of nineteen testing and tracing is acknowledged as being ineffective and not to do once a virus has kinda largely entered a population you might do it to try and isolate the population at the very start and we know this was in November in Europe December and unrestrained for months Right? We've been through the epidemic, full Gumpertz cycle, and we're out the other side. It's endemic now. So how in the name of God would you use by any pandemic guideline of the past, testing and tracing now in endemic phase?
1: This is a point made to devastating effect by uh, Professor Kulldorf, And yet Tedros at the World Health Organization just won't stop. Test, test, test. Contact tracing amid a contagious epidemic,
0: you know, yeah. it's just ridiculous. And you know, the WHO, and there's no conspiracy because they've clearly done it in plain sight for the last six months, they want to mask everyone in the middle of the summer. They want to lock down, lockdown lock like lunatics. They want to test, test, test. If you flipped a coin repeatedly 10 times, it's very hard to get 10 tails, be wrong 10 times. They are statistically, you know, being wrong at every single juncture, and that's hard to happen by chance.
1: Yeah, almost as bad as a PCR test, eh? um, But <laughs> yeah, pretty much. <laughs> Actually, that, that that's maybe just something that's worth trying to trying to unpack a little bit. You know, people repeatedly ask me. They say, "Well, well how can you say that there are lots of false positives if the false positive rate on the test is only one percent or two percent or whatever?" And it's a, it's a, it's a subtle thing. And I think something that people need to like just absorb a little bit and think about if the prevalence rate has gone down. I mean, let's take the extreme case. Let's imagine that there's no COVID in a population. And now you go and you test at this kind of level you launch millions of tests upon the population. Okay. Now, given that nobody's infected. Okay. Any test that comes back, is gonna be a positive test. How do you get to tens of thousands of cases? Well, test a million people with a false positive rate of 1%, and you will get 10,000 positives. But if by our assumption, there are no infected people there, 100% of the test results are false positive, even though the test false positive rate is only 1%. And so people need to understand this, that a low false positive rate for a test can actually translate into the bulk of the results being false positives. And I'm pretty sure that that's what's going on right now, worldwide.
0: Yeah, and certainly during the case demic used to justify masks and lockdowns in the prior couple of months, and and now maybe a bit less so because, and I I hasten to add, normally, coronaviruses rise in the winter months. And we have the Glasgow study, and, and we have so many studies. So now they will rise, but the crucial question is, is the ICU, ICU loading and the mortality excess specifically for the virus disproportionately high versus prior years? And the answer keeps coming back no. And as we go through the next month, we're going to see an increase in winter mortality. But again, if that's normal, then why are they doing this and what the hell is going on?
1: Why? Yeah, I can only process it as a, as a confluence of incentives. Again, Michael Eden's way of looking at it, which I think is correct. Um, you've got people who are making money and they're gonna carry on trying to do that out of this lunatic testing asylum. You've got people who are too far gone. They've committed too much to the doctrine of lockdown, the voodoo of lockdown, the voodoo of the mask. And it's hard for them to stand but down. And then you've got people with delusions of grandeur who want to save the world from the deadly virus, you know, Um, and who believe that they're going to do it with their vaccine. Um, Even though we've never had a really successful RNA vaccine um, and a safe one and efficacious one that you can show is safe and efficacious is years off, you know. Um, And then you've got, uh, I think, ineptitude as another part of the story. People who have, they're not, they're not that bright. They haven't really spent enough time studying the data and the information to form their views. They're forming their views out of fear and they go to sort of layman intuition, you know that you've got to be better off if you put a bit of cloth in front of your face and you've got to be better off if you stop visiting people. They're not, they just go for that sort of rudimentary, uh, kind of first thing that you can grab at something that computes in a very simplistic kind of way. And then they, be, in, the, in the midst of all the fear, they become adherents to this new religion, you know? And so I think they're sincere a lot of the time, but they're just not very clever, you know? And, and so you've got multiple commercial, political, uh, accident of history, psychological, fear-driven drivers of this thing that, that, that lead to the maintenance of essentially a voodoo science.
0: Yeah. And- you've got the virtue signaling aspect as well that pervades throughout the whole thing our modern society over 20 years has become safest and this virtue signaling thing so the people have become kind of psychotic on this one and they're screeching for these intuitively they should work lockdowns and they've been propagandized for six months by all the media from all the other factors you're talking about so they've been you know raised into a state of psychosis so the whole thing is like this enormous engine with many parts but it's all driving one way the only one i'd add is in fairness in it's open the world economic forum have been very open about this being a huge opportunity and they're very influential all over the world the who has repeatedly driven hysteria recently i noticed they're talking about locking down all of europe and closing borders in an endemic second bump you couldn't make it up these guys
1: i find that stuff sinister and off the air i'll tell you what i think they can do with their great reset
0: <laughs> okay we won't talk about it here we get bumped <laughs> off youtube yeah <laughs>
1: and that brings me oh, to this great I- I wanted to just take everybody through this because, you know, if, you, if, you've, if you've been paying attention to the rest of this presentation, you've got to be asking questions, right? If there aren't excess deaths in the UK and if there aren't excess respiratory diseases and if there, if there aren't people dying in hospitals and so on, then you've got to be asking what are these scientists doing this for and what kind of nonsense are they feeding me? And I want to just take people through the whole narrative because It's my firm belief that every single part of the narrative is wrong. It's not just that there's one or two elements of the coronavirus narrative that are wrong. The whole lot are wrong. You know, to start with, there's the story we've been fed of there's a new virus. It's not correct at all. I mean, we are dealing with an individuum of SARS-CoV. Um, An individuum is like the closest taxonomic relationship you can have. It's not a new species. It's not even a new subspecies. Here's a virus that's like Ivor is to Nick. You know, (laughs) we're both subspecies Homo sapiens sapiens. um, And you're you're Ivor and I'm Nick. Well, this is the case with SARS-CoV-1 and SARS-CoV-2. They're very, very similar viruses. And that has great importance as we will get to just now. The second thing is that this new virus is a new deadly virus, a deadly new virus. You know, this is the the standard tagline in The Guardian and The New York Times. Um, It's not. Uh, Professor Yanidis' work on this, which was, you know, initially people, those very newspapers, heaped scorn on it and tried to say that it was faulty, the research. But his work, which has recently been published by the World Health Organization now, underscoring how sound it is, is demonstrating that the fatality rates here are commensurate same order of magnitude as a, as a regular flu, a regular respiratory disease. Um, so that's not true. Not new, not deadly. And then this idea that we're all susceptible to it, you know, uh, which was underpinning those crazy models that were so evidently wrong, even on the date of publication in light of the Diamond Princess data. Um, it was clear that not all people were susceptible. Why aren't they susceptible? Well, because the virus isn't new and because we've got... T-cell immunity, cross-reactive T-cell immunity from other yes. similar coronaviruses, of which there are about four circulating in the general human population all the time. So we're not all also-
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just on the deadly, I, I often say it's within the envelope of a bad flu rather than saying it's just a flu because of the politics, but within the envelope of a, of a bad flu, which we never did anything for, and on the susceptible, I often try to get through to people and say, look, guys, there's studies that were done with symptomatic index cases, and they looked at all their indoor close contacts, no masks, and 85 plus percent never exhibit any problem. If we were truly all exposed, those guys would have ravaged all the people they were living indoors with. They don't empirically. We know they don't.
1: And we've known it it since March. I think the GELT study was published in March or April, and there was that stunning result where your probability, if you lived in GELT, of having encountered the coronavirus and gotten sick enough to generate antibodies, okay, was 15%. 15% of the population got sick enough to develop antibodies. You know what the probability of having had coronavirus was if your spouse had it? Also 15% which tells you a lot, you know, it didn't present a spouse with who, who was sick with coronavirus had an antibody response. So we're not talking about an asymptomatic case here, you know, or very li- unlikely that they would be asymptomatic. Having a spouse who was sick enough to be symptomatic, didn't change your probability at
0: all. <laughs> yeah. it, this is so obvious and yet they're creating cathedrals of anti-science, you know, complex discussions and they're all junk. There is no question about that. Yeah, so sorry, I'll let you go ahead, Nick.
1: No, it's, it's all very interesting. And then the next point here is this idea that immunity is not long-lived, that it vanishes. And that's based on this, it, it's a true statement that antibodies wane quite quickly. But what's ignored is that's always the case. If your body maintained an antibody response for every virus in, it, in the system, you know, as we said just now, you've got viruses in you all the time you know, you would die, you wouldn't be able to make it you can't maintain Uh, antibody response is very energetic. It's taxing on the system. So you only mount one when an infection gets out of control, and the antibody response wanes, what doesn't wane and has been known about for decades, is your T cell memory and B cell memory, the part of your immune system that helps it wake up and get going again, if you get a serious infection down the line. And so it's completely wrong to be, and these scientists know this, this is first year immunology, it's not new. They know it, okay? But so they're lying when they tell you that your immunity vanishes because the antibodies are waning. That is a downright lie. There's no other term for it. This is not a lack of knowledge. You can't have studied any any immunology and not know this. It's first year stuff. Hmm.
0: And, and we have top immunologists saying this, and they're actually getting their way onto the national airwaves regularly. So they are actually forcing their way onto the airwaves to lie. As Professor Beda Stadler said, you know, he's the emeritus professor of immunology vaccine uh, pope of Europe, right? The Fauci of Switzerland. This guy, I interviewed him in Bern, and he said he calls them immunity deniers because he's been astonished that all of his colleagues around the world are denying the basics of immunology 101 he said and he asked them and secretly they admit to him uh, the ones who won't speak up they say well our careers you're retired but we we can't say anything We, we get attacked if we even mention this so go figure
1: Yeah. In fact, I go as far as telling people that you should only listen to people who are not currently employed listen to the retired people or the independently funded and employed people, the people who have their own businesses, their own uh, research institutes or whatever, you know, where they are not dependent on some big brother, you know, don't listen to those guys. Because what's happened is the entire university establishment, virtually the entire research program has been captured by corporations who have an interest in perpetuating this stuff. Yeah. And, and, that's and why it reminds I'm, me the a of the old Adler and a Michael Levitt speaking up you know
0: Exactly and it reminds me of the old one how do you know that they're lying? their lips are moving and sadly that applies to these and you could say there's a massive groupthink and cognitive dissonance that has infected a lot of them but there's a large cadre throughout very outspoken who know they're lying There's no question about that I'd say. And
1: the other thing I would say in connection with that is we've got to be really appreciative of people like uh, Professor Kuldorf and Professor Gupta and and Professor Bhattacharya who are in their careers. You know, they're they're still doing and we hope that they will go on to do great work, Um, but they're brave. They're standing up against this nonsense. And those are the voices you need to hear, the ones who are going against the grain on this. It's very important to listen to them.
0: Absolutely, always listen to the experts and specialists who are speaking against their own inherent interests. And that's an old, old rule. Always listen to the guy who's saying something else if he's speaking against his own interests. And that's what we see here clear as day. Yeah.
1: And so the story goes on. You got here this idea that, you know, because we can all get it again and because we're all susceptible, the only thing that can save us is a vaccine, you know. And so we've got to lock down and wear masks until one of those comes along, or we're all going to die, you know, that kind of narrative. And there are a couple of things here. First of all, connecting back to the idea of whether this is deadly or not, the mortality rate for young and healthy people is so low that it's going to be extraordinarily difficult to demonstrate that a vaccine is, has, is efficacious. You know, how do you, if, if, the, if the mortality rate for a, For a young, healthy person is one in a million, you know, which is not too far off the case. Um, Then how do you, or one in a hundred thousand or something like that, depending on how you define healthy. um, How do you prove that your vaccine is having a protective effect without having a sample size of millions of people? So it's going to be tricky to prove that these vaccines are safe and, and efficacious. They're not going to test them on now, I, don't, I don't expect they'll be testing them on the vulnerable people because that could be dangerous for them. So how are we going to get to this vaccine? And, you know, are we, how confident are we that there is one at the end of the road? I mean, the way Martin Kulldorff puts it is, uh, you know, the expected time of, of arrival for a, um, for a vaccine is somewhere between 18 months and never, you know. Um, so it, it's a, it's a bad idea in, its, in itself that we have to go to a vaccine and it ignores the the bottom line that, For most people their vaccine is their own immune systems and they're working perfectly well you know um so it's another problematic part of this narrative
0: well i can answer one question that you had there how how will they know it's effective on mortality and serious outcomes and the answer is they don't care because the vaccine trials and it's been in i think the new york times even mainstream media the criteria they've chosen for success is fewer sniffles and some kind of subjective so if the vaccine appears to demonstrate lesser symptoms uh it's go and mortality is not in it and uh, and other real world impacts so the trial is kind of set up that if it does anything at all uh great you're you're all you're all go we we looked at a trial the other day where the placebo
1: group you know had been set up with they were taking they weren't taking you know a a complete placebo which has no effect they were using another vaccine which has a suppressive effect on viral resistance um so that you know the the whole experimental design had been rigged to demonstrate that the that the 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 vaccine itself was effective
0: yeah and apparently i only found this out recently because i don't really get into the vaccine topic it's too crazy but uh, i found out recently that's the standard that they never use or they very rarely use a placebo it's usually another vaccine they compare against and i had a discussion asking but a placebo has been a time honored thing it's a thing with no effect maybe a bitter taste so the person doesn't know it's a placebo but but and there was no real answer vague answers as to why with vaccine you don't use the placebo uh, they didn't make any sense but apparently that's kind of standard now
1: yeah Look, like you, I don't like getting into the vaccine thing too much because I'm, I'm most certainly not an anti-vax person. I mean, I think vaccines were fantastic inventions that saved millions of lives. You know, when it came to diseases like smallpox and polio. So I'm not an anti-vax person, but I just look at this thing and I say, what really? What are we doing here?
0: Yeah. Well, look, in the way, and I'm obviously zero anti-vax as well, and I always tell the story really quickly. A few years ago, went to Shenzhen, my corporation said, oh, you need some vaccines for something. Went down to the local company doctor, slapped them in, didn't even ask what they were for. So I, I'm not in, I just don't follow all that stuff about harms and all. They don't care. But number needed to treat and cost benefit of a drug. I am into that. And back of the envelope for coronavirus, given the age of the fatalities, the qualities, and just looking at the simple data for coronavirus. <coughs> essentially it will probably cost the vaccine 20 to 40 times more per quality adjusted life here potentially saved if it's good right than the guidelines in the uk the nic guidelines for the amount you spend per quality adjusted life here saved so just on economic terms it's out by orders of magnitude from what we would ever consider just economic terms and like it seems no one cares about that at all. And-, and and I also
1: worry about these suggestions of these sinister, coercive practices of requiring vaccine passports and the like. I mean, that that to me is getting properly Orwellian, you know.
0: Well, you could do that for bubonic plague, maybe, or smallpox that's devastating Europe. But to do it for last year's flu-like illness? It makes no sense. That's endemic? I mean, I just can't compute. you see smoke coming out of my ears. It, nothing makes sense anymore, but yeah.
1: Okay, the last two points, either, Um, the second wave, we've discussed that the whole, t- the whole time today, and I hope people are starting to wonder about this deadly second wave story after all of that data. Um, and then there's this one, which I think goes back to the question of these academics who are not being honest. Um, they keep on talking about herd immunity as a strategy. And Ted Ross did it recently last week. He refers to it as a strategy. That's a lie. It's not a strategy. It's an endpoint. And it's the endpoint achieved whether you get there by enough people becoming infected or by a vaccine. And, you know, this this concept that talking about how we get to herd immunity entails you being a person who wants to let the virus rip, you know, is just a dishonest Slur. Um, We all know that it's one of the two ways of, you know, vaccine or infection. Everybody's going to be exposed or not everybody, but uh, a substantial portion of the population are going to be exposed. And, you know, to me, this is actually the essence of the whole story, because if you remember from our first uh, discussion all those months ago, um, we put up this chart. Um, Sorry, where is it? Did I go right past it? Sorry.
0: No, I'll edit it out after.
1: There it is. Um, we put up this chart showing, you know, back then on our early analysis that there was no relationship between lockdown stringency and mortality. As more of the longer dated lockdown countries fill in, that line is going to start tipping against lockdown. We're going to we we are almost certainly going to end up showing that lockdowns actually cause higher coronavirus mortality. mortality. And the reason for that is linked to this concept that your end point, whether you like it or not, is herd immunity. Okay, And what you want to be doing, what your strategy ought to be oriented around doing is getting to herd immunity whilst infecting the smallest possible number of vulnerable people. And you do that by changing the relative mobility of vulnerable people you bring down their mobility without reducing the the mobility of the non-vulnerable people and what generalized lockdowns general lockdowns do is exactly the opposite because your vulnerable people are less mobile to start with so when you start putting the brakes on the kids and the young adults and so on you you massively reduce their mobility And so the relative mobility of the older and more vulnerable people, the at-risk people, actually goes up. And that, for me, is a very compelling explanation for why you get this very high mortality in countries like Peru, who have had brutal and extended lockdowns, and the very high age-based mortality that we've experienced in South Africa um, with our 220-odd day lockdown it's actually counterproductive
0: and you know what this was published in the british medical journal back in june july this concept by a team peer-reviewed and we have the paper and friedrich uh, also has a paper out now preprint. same concept makes absolute sense even though it's a little counterintuitive and it agrees with the real world data and predictions unlike imperial college junk So here we have it that they will actually serve to maximize COVID-19 deaths over the long term and add on an enormously bigger number of excess deaths by all the other lockdown impacts. And they destroy society, destroy freedoms, ruin the economy, cause massive child poverty and starvation over time in other areas of the world, yada, yada, yada. So the science says that this is the most catastrophic own goal in human history in public health interventions. And the irony, the irony is the West chose to drop all of what we knew and copy China. Isn't that the irony as the initial spark for this madness?
1: Yeah, the the biggest lockdown fanatics not just with respect to coronavirus, but with respect to Uyghurs and with respect to Hong Kongers, you know, they show it all the time. That's what they do for fun. they lock down. You know, you don't copy people like that. Ever. But the good news either. The good news. Mm. I think people are starting to get it. I I think it's
0: starting. I do. And the media in the last few weeks, even in Ireland, which is Pravda Central, You would not believe, and I won't go into the horror of the media in Ireland over the past six months. England Spectator Telegraph were showing the odd sane article by Professor Carl Hennigan and by Professor John Lee and others. England media now are getting really alive, and even Ireland is moving. Like I said, I'm hopefully in the Sunday Business Post this Sunday with a big interview. Now, they might try to use it to smear me. I don't care. Because I don't care because this is for my children, for everyone's children, for the future of the world, for the health of the populations to be maximized and to uphold truth and science. So I have so many principled reasons for this. I don't care who comes after me. I'll take on anyone. And I also told them in the interview, and I hope they print this, when asked about all the experts, how could they be wrong? And they'll say you're wrong and you're fringe. I say, well, debate me I have that offer and they've declined. And then the reporter said, Yes, but you could say they won the debate already because the government and everyone is following what they're saying they won the debate. And I said, No, you win a debate when you actually debate someone worthy. Then you can claim a win. You don't win a debate if no one ever debated because we had censorship and a hundred percent one sided coverage. That's not winning. That's not science.
1: I'll tell you how bad this gets. All right. We, we, well, we've got, I've got three journalists in South Africa who've seen the light, you and know, to their credit quite a while ago as well, who've been trying to set up a debate like this now for month after month after month. And they've tried everything. The other day, they set one up with one of the, the, um, the CEOs of a, a corporation that's been thumping the, the lockdown Bible. Uh, you know, it's a health related firm. Um, and one of the members of the ministerial advisory committee, they, they got them to agree to come to the panel. And then they found out that the third guest was going to be me. And within 24 hours, both of them had made their excuses. They didn't refuse. It wasn't like they were refusing to engage with me. No, the one had another meeting and the other one didn't have time. And, you know, they just disappear. They, they're cowardly. They're not going to discuss because they know they haven't got the answers. And, you know, even our, our, the, the, the head of our ministerial advisory committee, you know, just as recently as last week, was appearing on left, right and center on, you know, arbitrary radio shows um, presented by these guys who just fawn and, and you know, platform them and, and give them, you know, give, allow them to give vent to their nonsense, you know. Um, but, of course, as soon as he's invited to come on a show uh, where he's actually going to engage and have somebody give him a hard time about all this nonsense, he hasn't got time happy to go on all the other programs but not time for this one so they, they are they are cowards they are liars they are frauds either and i think people are going to wake up to it i think it's coming yeah.
0: and i think i think they are nick and there's definitely green shoots uh, a couple of pretty senior people in the ac- academic world brought me together through email with one of ireland's pundits who's been up on the television all the time talking about coffins and refrigerator trucks Twenty-eight thousand will die in ireland if we don't lock down which is just insane and he actually tentatively agreed to debate me and it would be you know judged and run and then they brought in a media company an irish media company and it began to consolidate And then he backed out and said he's not giving credence to what I'm saying by having a debate. Complete chicken. So anyway, any. Yeah, anyone from the other side, the invite is open. No editing. You can come on the podcast and explain to me how we're right to be locking down and all. And we'll have a discussion very civil and no edit, uh, just as it is. And I'll release it. But guess what? Never going to happen. Because they know, they know they'll be beaten. That's right. Well, Ivor,
1: all credit to you. Uh, Keep up the fight. I'm not going to give up. I I think this is a fight for the existence of civilization. I think we are heading down a very, very dangerous road. And people need to see it that way. We really do. We can't go on furlough and doing nothing and waiting every season for another lockdown. It'll just cripple economies and lead to starvation and the end of life as we know it i mean it it, it really is important i think that people wake up to that reality and uh, get behind organizations like yours and like panda
0: Um, so yeah well done well done yourself nick and yeah anyone watching you have to keep on trying to convert and you may have to get louder and more activist Uh, otherwise you're going to end up throwing your children's future under the bus thank you nick High-five, Ivor. Go well. Good, man. And just a reminder that I do need support to continue putting together all of this content. And at patreon.com forward slash or for PayPal at tinyurl.com forward slash where you can do a one-off or a monthly support. So I'd really appreciate that, guys, and keep me getting the science out there and countering, perhaps, the more biased corporate-type science. Thank you.